I'll start with a couple of questions that uh, were asking about some of the reflections yesterday afternoon, in particular about my description of my work around self-hatred. I'll paraphrase this one. I can see how the positive and negative self-views go hand in hand. But is there some sort of healthy middle ground? If so, would you call that middle ground self-love? The um, exploration of these diametrically opposed senses of self And I think this is not an uncommon experience for some entrenched patterns to have to have senses of self that as one person today in the interviews talked about binary stars, you know, they depend on each other, they rotate in dependence on each other. And I think it's not uncommon for certain patterns of our mind to have this kind of diametrically opposed uh, um, selves, selves <laughs> involved. And um, in observing those and recognizing those, I think one of the, it's kind of like they're opposite ends of a magnet, you know, it's like you can't have the one without the other. And we, um, you know, kind of have the sense or wish we could have the sense that, as I said, you know, that the I'm doing well. I'm a, I'm I'm competent. I'm capable. You know that that feeling of that side of the equation. You know we think that's what we're supposed to do, and in some ways that might be what we would call self-love. You know that we 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 have a positive self-identity or self-image or something like that. And so, um, for me at least, it was quite. Uh, well, maybe a little bit scary, let's say. It was a little bit scary to contemplate what it might be to let go of both poles. I mean, to let go of the positive pole. I wanted to be able to just cut the magnet in half and get rid of the the uh, self-hatred side, but keep the, 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 the self-positive side. But as I discovered, you know, uh, the, they, they go hand in hand. And the transformation of this, um, I think, is uh, as we begin to recognize the senses of self arising, so, oh, competent sense of self is arising, feeling of failing sense of self is arising, we see those, and we basically see them as conditioned, as opposed to being some solid thing, some solid entity as who I am. And so we see them as um, uh, 
circumstances and conditions in the moment. Competency is arising right now. Capacity to accomplish and do is arising right now. Appreciating that capacity is arising. And on the other side, sense of non-competency is arising right now. And again, it's holding both of those with this uh, understanding, this mind of understanding that understands they are not who I am, they are simply conditions arising, lasting for a while and ceasing. Conditions arising, lasting for a while and ceasing. And with that uh, understanding, the um, congealing or the identification around those patterns begins to weaken. And we are left with some kind of a middle ground of understanding and wisdom that is paired with allowing acceptance of the arisings. Sense of competency arises. It's not a problem. It's not something that I have to own and uh, develop some sense of this is who I am. It's just, oh, competency is arising. That capacity is arising. So allowing, opening to that side of the equation and also the other side, the opening to the allowing, oh, this is the arising of a feeling of, feeling of failure right now. It's conditions arising right now. And so that middle ground is understanding the conditions nature of whatever is arising. And that may be experienced in different ways, that understanding. It can be experienced, as we've been, been talking about, the many ways that this wisdom, the mind of wisdom, the mind that has a wise view and has what right attitude, what's the experience in that mind? It may feel like equanimity, balance, non-reactivity. It may have curiosity, and it may have an experience of love, of appreciation when the competency arises, of compassion when the sense of failure arises. And so I think in the, in the biggest picture, There's just these conditions unfolding and the understanding that conditions are unfolding. And that said, there are times when it's helpful to cultivate a um, a self-view 
that helps us let go of a self-view that's reactive and caught. Kind of like we we can, uh, well, one example for me is um, early, very early, I think on my very first 10-day retreat, I came out of that with the sense of this is possible, there's something I can do here to help myself just not be so miserable. And I could see at some level there was a an identity as a meditator being born. A sense of I am a practitioner and you know, this this identity, I could see that there was a you know, a little bit of stickiness around that, but the stickiness around that identity felt way less harmful than the stickiness around my miserable identity. The stickiness around all the ways that I struggled. And I could see that the practice was supportive in helping me to understand those and release those. And so in some ways we, we, we can cultivate identities that help us to let go. And another, another way this is talked about is, um, you know, that we learn how to let go of the pleasure, uh, our usual way of finding pleasure, you know, of having things that we want, of getting rid of things that we don't want, of having that second cookie or that second thin mint, you know, having having um, pleasurable things around us by cultivating a mind that appreciates and um, has a sense of joy and delight in the 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 settledness of mind that has a sense of joy and delight in the knowing of what's arising in the moment. And there can be some attachment. I think we all, you know, feel the attachment to the practice at time, the attachment to those states. And, and there will be some attachment to those states, but that doesn't mean we should stop practicing. We let go of it. Said it by depend by relying on this, abandon that. By relying on the uh, joy of renunciation, by relying on the joy of uh, a still meditative mind, we can abandon the happiness associated with our usual habits of mind. And then, by relying on wisdom by relying on equanimity and understanding we can balance can abandon the depending on the happiness of the uh, the bliss states or the attachment to understanding so it's a staged process this this practice this unfolding and so for some cultivating and exploring the capacity for self-love, really opening to that possibility, the whole cultivation of the metta practice is extremely helpful. Sometimes it's said that for an aversive mind, the practice of metta is the, uh, the balancing factor. 
didn't work for my aversive mind, but uh, and for a long time, you know. So the the, the uh, for some aversive minds, there's so much aversion that there's just not a way into the actual practice of metta. So, but for some people, that's extremely helpful, and so by relying on that. Uh, exploration and cultivation of oh, may I be happy, may I be healthy, may others be happy and healthy. By relying on that practice we can start to abandon some of our fear, some of our reactivity, some of our anger. So for some people that's very supportive. And again it's, it's by relying on this abandon that. And then we you know, as the practice unfolds, we may start to see that we're attached, and it's not necessary. It's not the. It's not the. Not necessarily the. Uh, the arising of the love that's the issue. It's the stickiness to it. And so we learn how to let go of the clinging around wholesome states, and we we learn that that's the, the time to do that is when we are experiencing the suffering of that. As, as I um, described in my, in my um, example, I saw that I was creating this identity as a meditator. And uh, I wasn't particularly troubled by it. I, I knew it was helpful. And it was really helping me let go of that what I was doing with that identity as a meditator was practicing, was watching my mind, was learning about my mind. And so it was helpful to let me abandon the other. At some point, and it actually took a long time, many, many years before I really felt the suffering of the attachment to being a meditator. When I felt that, that was when I needed to start letting go of that attachment. So sometimes we get this idea of, oh, I can see I'm attached to something, or no, intellectually, oh, I'm, I know I'm attached to this. And we figure, well, because I'm attached to it, I shouldn't do it. Well, if that were the case, we would all abandon practice because we all get attached to various aspects of the practice. And so that's not so helpful. So I sometimes say, let suffering be your guide. I wasn't particularly experiencing the suffering of being a practitioner. In fact, it did the opposite. I was experiencing relief and freedom around the larger sources of suffering. So that identity wasn't creating obvious suffering. In fact, it was uh, helping to release obvious suffering. But as those layers of very obvious suffering began to fall away over the years, I began to understand at times that identity as having clinging in it and feeling the clinging in it and feeling the suffering of it. And that's when it was appropriate to start exploring Ooh, that hurts. Okay, what's that suffering? How does that suffering come together? What's that attached to? Start exploring and investigating that. Again, not to try to, like, to stop it, but to investigate, allowing the wisdom to free the mind.
And the second question about the talk yesterday. When you talked about how to work with self-hatred, you said that the insight was, this is just a thought. Could you elaborate on that? What do you mean by that? I.e. a thought as opposed to what? Also, are thoughts the result of causes and conditions? So, um, the, uh, the insight that happened in that moment when the mind saw the arising of self-hatred or saw the, the, the beginning, saw it being put together, watched it like being put together and saw immediately into it, the understanding was expressed in that phrase. This is just a thought. And the, the understanding, I think, was basically an, a recognition of what I would say is the emptiness or the insubstantiality of thought. That thought has, is just this fleeting blip of experience and has no substance whatsoever unless the mind jumps on that thought and engages in a process around it beginning to believe it, for instance. And so the, uh, that, that understanding, this is just the thought, was expressing this recognition of this has no inherent reality or meaning, this experience, this this thought arising has no inherent reality or meaning. This is not our usual relationship with thoughts. Our usual relationship with thoughts is to, to invest in them some kind of meaning, to have a belief system forming around them. And very much the pattern of self-hatred was a form of belief around thoughts. And so that's my... Uh, I guess that's that's a I guess a little elaboration of what uh, that understanding was in that moment, the recognition of the if, insubstantial nature of the thoughts around self-hatred. It had a pretty potent effect in terms of recognizing. You know, sometimes our insights have a wider impact than just on a particular arising. It's like what, what happens is we see the, um, a broader truth around that recognition. So not only did I recognize that the thoughts of self-hatred are ephemeral, insubstantial, but thoughts in general are insubstantial and, and ephemeral and have no reality other than what the mind invests in them. And so that, that uh, had a, it had a, a broader impact on the mind to have that understanding or see that, see that thought. So the second part of the question, are thoughts the result of causes and conditions? Yes. All arising experience comes about due to causes and conditions. We cannot really um, know 
all the causes and conditions at play. Somebody the other day asked, is, is the, what's arising now dependent on just what happened right before? Is that what the conditions are, just what happened right before? Well, there's some of that, and in fact, that's a very potent force. So, for instance, if you have anger going in the mind, the, uh, the anger has a potent conditioning force on the next moments. It's likely to continue. At some point, especially with history of practice, you know, with history of meditation practice and history of having the uh, interest to, to explore and investigate our unwholesome mind states, within that mind stream of uh, conditioned, conditioned, conditioned moments of anger conditioning each other, a moment of mindfulness can arise. That moment of mindfulness is conditioned on many years, perhaps, of practicing mindfulness. The recognition of that moment of arising is conditioned on the practice of recognizing mindfulness arising. So that mindfulness arises there because of seeds that were planted a long time ago, or maybe four minutes ago. (laughs) And so there's the... uh, the possibility that in a moment not only are the conditions from the immediately previous moment but conditions from the past can come in. Sometimes they come in in helpful ways such as the arising of mindfulness. And in that moment when mindfulness arises it has a very powerful, I mean mindfulness and wisdom have a very powerful impact on the subsequent arising mind moments. And so that's just a, you know, kind of a basic, very simple example of how we might see that not only uh, are conditions coming from, you know, just the immediacy of moment to moment, but coming also from basically all of, all of past history of the universe. It all, (laughs) it all comes into play and impacts in this moment. And because of that vastness of the conditioned chain, the Buddha basically said, don't try to contemplate all the conditions that come into play in this moment. (laughs) You'll go mad if you try to do that. If you try to figure out all the conditions that came into play in this moment. I mean, just even a simple reflection can help us see how vast the uh, web of conditions are. So for yourselves right now, reflect on how you got in this room I mean, there's some obvious things like, you know, you walked up the stairs and, you know. But being in this room right now was one of the conditions for that was having signed up for this retreat, you know, five months ago. What conditioned that? What conditioned signing up for this retreat five months ago? Some things might have been circumstantial. You happened to uh, talk to a friend who said this retreat was happening. Some things might have been uh, intentional, looking for a retreat at this time. So that's another kind of, you know, we can see kind of it gets bigger from there. It's like, and then thinking back from there, you know, how did you ever start practicing in the first place? That's a condition for how you're in this room. 
the web of conditions is vast. And so trying to contemplate it, it can be interesting to recognize just how vast it is because it helps us to appreciate the, just the unfolding process nature of this mind and body, of this whole system of conditions and processes at work. And so, yes, thoughts are part of this whole process. I just remembered something Gil teaches every now and then. Uh, An insight, I guess, he had, he describes it just as something that he recognized one point. It sounds like it was experienced as an insight. It's like a thought arose. And uh, his understanding in that moment, that thought arose was like, wow, this thought arose and it's like the product, it's the, it's the result of the entirety of the entire evolution of the universe came together in the arising of this thought. <laughs> How amazing. This next question is a question that... Uh, there have been centuries of debate about. What is the mind? And the question goes on, is there a capital M mind? And how does that differ from a lowercase m mind? Um, So, as I said, there have been centuries of debate about this question and no agreement. And so I'll just explore briefly a few of the different ways that, I'm not gonna try to describe the various factions, (laughs) but just some of the ways that the word, that that, that the concept is used in the suttas. and in some of the commentaries. Um, so one of the main ways, or one of the main ways it's used is, is in the six sense spaces. We talk about the eye and sight. So the eye is like a base for receiving impact, ex- receiving contact. The eye is this like organ or base that receives contact. So there's eye and sight, ear and sound, tongue and taste, nose and smell, body, skin and tactile consciousness, tactile experience, and the mind and mind experience. Now this mind, in my understanding, is not referring to brain. But there's this kind of recognition or understanding that there, I see this, this, this teaching of the mind and the objects of mind is kind of like the, mi- the, 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 the functions in the mind have two purposes. One is the production of experience. So the mind has the function of producing thoughts, producing ideas, producing feelings, producing um, emotions. That's one of the ways the mind works. It it has that 
productive quality, intentions. The other, another function in there is the, essentially this capacity to recognize or know what's going on. So the, the mind base is the receptive side of the mind. Kind of that's my, my understanding. It's not laid out. It's not, it's not defined in the suttas, as far as I can tell, what mind is in that way. It's just said, yep, there's the mind base and mind experiences. So we're left to understand, you know, to, to discuss for 2,600 years, what is the mind anyway? <laughs> so you're not alone in asking this question because it has been coming up for a long time. So that's one way in which mind is discussed in the texts. Another way is um, uh, as the arising of experience, in the moment of experience, there's you know, consciousness that is the knowing capacity of mind. There's consciousness and what are called its concomitant functions. It's mental concomitants, and this includes things like intention and attention and feeling and perception and uh, maybe there's there's uh, there's I think five or seven seven <laughs> seven that arise with every single mind moment, and those are some of them: feeling, perception, intention, attention. I can't remember the others. Mindfulness is not. Attention, not, not, not mindfulness. <laughs> attention, intention, attention. Um, um, then there's a whole bunch of others that arise sometimes and don't arise at other times. Mindfulness being one of those. The hindrance or the this greed, aversion, delusion being factors that arise sometimes in the mind, not in others. And so mind is sometimes termed as this complex of functions arising at the at a time. So this is kind of abhidhamic. It's kind of Buddhist psychology. So um, given all of that kind of technical description, my interest is in simply what is the experience right now of being aware and what is that awareness knowing? What is that awareness aware of? The more we begin to explore that, the more we see different functions going on. You know, we see and how they interconnect. So we see um, an experience of uh, pain in the body connected to the experience of feeling, connected to uh, a reaction, and, and understanding that some of these are mental processes and some of them are physical processes. And so this, this simple beginning to uh, 
recognize mental processes, physical processes, we begin to understand something about the way our minds work without needing a definition for mind. The definition, I think the definition for mind is, well, it's a concept. And the Buddha gave us enough information to understand suffering, understand the cause of suffering, and that it's possible to release suffering. He gave us, he gave us enough information in terms of how to look at this mind-body process to recognize how that suffering is put together and that being what allows the wisdom to support it releasing. So the, the, um, the, Im- the important part is, is that, understanding enough about what's going on in the mental and physical processes to see how suffering is created. In the process, there's a lot of things about the mind that get understood. But as far as I can tell, given that 2,600 years of exploration into this question have not yielded the definitive answer, maybe it's not an important question. And yet, you know, 2,600 years of people are thinking it is an important question. And so, but I think the, the way it points back, I think the, the way it, it can be interesting for us is to allow the question rather than having to have the answer, allow the question to motivate an inquiry. As best as I can tell, you know, this question has motivated inquiry through the years, and that inquiry has come up with different answers. Kind of like the inquiry into what is light. What is light? Is it a wave? Is it a particle? This question of physics and the uh, the answer basically is it depends on how you run the experiment. When you run the experiment one way, light behaves like a particle. When you run the experiment another way, light behaves like a wave. I think similarly with the meditation. The meditation tools, technology, investigating this question may come up with different answers depending on what the investigation is. So can we hold both? Can we hold this notion of, of the mind as, I mean, one of the key differences um, or key sense, uh, key articulations of the two camps, we can say there's, you know, we, uh, I'm, I'm aware of two basic camps, is at least in the Theravada, you know, there's, there's two basic camps. One which basically understands the mind and consciousness as arising and passing away. Every moment it arises, it ceases. There's no, like, underlying ground of consciousness. 
no one oneness of awareness. It is simply arising and ceasing, arising and ceasing, arising and ceasing. There's no ground of being out of which awareness arises. It's just the arising and ceasing of processes. That's one camp, one view of mind and consciousness. Another view is there is some kind of pure consciousness. I don't know. Can we hold the possibility that perhaps it's a perspective created by how we're looking at experience? Maybe there's not a right answer. But let the question, you know, let the question in, in, in inspire inquiry because the investigation into this mind is crucial. How does this mind do what it does? What happens in there? So let the, let the, uh, the question motivate inquiry without needing to know the answer. And I would suggest, if you think you find an answer, hold it lightly, rather than creating a view. It's like this. That's creating a a concept which is yet just another arising in the mind. Then a question about concentration. Um, This practice seems to de-emphasize concentration and yet the suttas do mention in more than more than in passing the jhanas. It seems the jhanas are being cultivated in this practice. Um, I mean, I'm sorry. The 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 the, the, pa- the jhanic factors are being cultivated in this practice. Yes, the the um, the factors that come together to create concentration in the mind are being cultivated in this practice. And so this really is a question about how does, I think, I think of this question as how does concentration work in this practice and um, uh, how does perhaps Sayadaw hold the question of jhana? I haven't heard Sayadaw talk much about jhana, so instead of, of talking about what Sayadaw thinks about it, I'll, I'll explore a little bit of how I hold jhana currently, how I understand it currently. Um, So jhana in the suttas is defined as being uh, states um, of mm, collectedness of mind. I'll read a little description. There's a case where one, quite withdrawn from sensuality, withdrawn from unskillful mental qualities, enters and remains in the first jhana. Rapture and pleasure born from withdrawal from sensuality, accompanied by directed thought and evaluation. 
That's the description of the first jhana. A very pleasant state. Mind is unified, secluded from sense pleasure, secluded from hindrances, secluded from reactivity. And it goes on to describe the subsequent states as getting more and more refined in a way, more and more still. The state of the mind, more and more still. So that's the description in the, in the suttas. And I thought there was a few places in the suttas, but I just was checking, and I cannot actually find any place at this point where there's anywhere in the suttas that ties this description of the state of concentration to the activity of picking one object and staying with it. There's a description of mindfulness of breathing. It doesn't bring up these states in that sutta. It does come up in the mindfulness of the body sutta, but it basically has talked about all these various different ways of exploring mindfulness of the body, and then it says, and then one enters into jhana. So, as I began in this practice, recognize at, at one point on one long retreat, I found the mind kind of becoming more and more still, and very much in a way it felt like the, uh, the experience of the mind was going through things that were, sounded like this description. This sounded like this description of jhana, the state of jhana in the suttas. Without ever picking an object, without ever saying, I'm going to pay attention to one thing and not, not you know, let anything else intrude. Without ever doing that, the mind went into these states that from the inside felt very like what's described in the suttas. And so my current understanding of the description of jhana in the suttas is that it doesn't actually rely on this practice of coming back to one object. That description is clearly in the commentaries. In the Theravada tradition, it's very uh, held in the commentaries. There may be a place or two. I looked in some of the obvious places and I was kind of surprised because I thought, I actually thought it was associated with mindfulness of breathing. This one practices mindfulness of breathing to enter the first jhana. I, I don't see that. If, if you know otherwise, leave me a reference. I'll be happy to look it up. But in many, in many, many of the references to jhana, it does not talk about picking an object. And so my understanding about these states is that they are basically states of consciousness. They're states of mind that can come together with this, uh, basically the, the Eightfold Path says wise effort and wise mindfulness support wise concentration. What we're doing here is wise effort and wise mindfulness. And initially the kind of concentration may not have the quality of feeling like these deepening states of uh, unification and stillness. 
but it's not it's not um, contradictory to them either. So um, I see that in this practice, yes, it de-emphasizes one-pointed concentration. It de-emphasizes choosing an object and staying with it. But that's a fairly narrow description of concentration. It's a fairly narrow, it's, a, it's one way into concentration. The Buddha in, I brought this sutta with me. He talked about four developments of concentration. He said, there's the development of concentration that leads to pleasant abiding here and now. He said, that's the jhanas. There's the development of concentration that when developed and pursued leads to the attainment of knowledge and vision. That's psychic powers, basically. There's the development of concentration that when developed and pursued leads to mindfulness and alertness. This is basically where we're working at this point. And there's the development of concentration that when developed and pursued leads to the freedom from suffering. The ending of the effluence here is the term for that. This is another term for freedom from suffering. And so the description of the development of concentration that leads to mindfulness and alertness. Since this is what we're basically encouraging here, I thought I'd read it to you. And what is the development of concentration that leads to mindfulness and alertness? There is the case where feelings are known as they arise, known as they persist, known as they subside. Perceptions are known as they arise, known as they persist, known as they subside. Thoughts are known as they arise, known as they persist, known as they subside. This is the development of concentration that when developed and pursued leads to mindfulness and alertness. And my, in my experience, that development of concentration creates states of mind that are very collected, very unified. So again, I encourage an exploration in your own experience for how concentration works. If you're familiar with the one-pointed concentration, that has a particular flavor to it. It has a particular uh, taste to the experience. And if that's what you're looking for in concentration, you may miss a different flavor of it. So be curious about how this uh, mm, continuity of mindfulness leads to a stability of mind. And as we begin to have that stability of mind and come into what we've been, I've been encouraging is when you begin to recognize aware, aware, you know, getting familiar with the awareness itself, that awareness begins to have some of these stable qualities. The objects are not very stable. <laughs> you know, we're seeing thoughts, feelings, uh, arise, body sensations, arise, persist, subside. We're just seeing it all. But the mind is getting stable.
so I, um, I again, I feel like the Buddha, in the way that he used language and the way that he stated the practice, he left a wide pasture. He created a lot of room for different practices, different ways in. I think it's very respectful that, you know, different minds have different proclivities, different capacities. And in some ways, you know, all the different technologies are reflections of some person's mind that found a useful tool within this very broad pasture. So I think there's a lot of room for flexibility in what the definition of why of right concentration is you know it's it's defined in here but uh how to get there i think there's lots of different ways and so that's probably enough there's a little you know it's We've been here for 50 minutes, that's probably enough. So I think we'll just leave it with those questions and not take questions from the room today. So let's just sit for a few minutes. <coughs> 